This is Geology Bites with Oliver Strimple. In a recent episode, Nadia Drabon spoke about newly discovered zircon crystals that formed during the late Hadean and early Archean when the Earth was between 500 million and a billion years old. The zircons revealed information about processes occurring in the Earth's nascent crust, casting light on when and how modern-day plate tectonics may have started. In this episode, we talk about a very different source of information about the early Earth, namely the abundances of noble gases occurring within present-day basalts. It turns out that these can probe the Earth's mantle and atmosphere even further back in time, to the first hundred million years of Earth history. Sujoy Mukhopadhyay leads a team of researchers who have developed new techniques for measuring the abundances of noble gas isotopes in a variety of Earth materials. By combining the results of these measurements with geochemical models, he has shed light on questions about the very early Earth and planet formation that have challenged researchers for decades. Here we focus on one of these. Do any structures originating from the very early Earth survive in today's mantle? Sujoy Mukhopadhyay is Professor of Geochemistry at the University of California, Davis. Sujoy Mukhopadhyay, welcome to Geology Bites. Thank you, Oliver. I'm delighted to join you and I am really excited to chat with you. How is it that we're able to use noble gases to probe the very early Earth? Is it to do with the fact that they are chemically inert? So yes, you're absolutely right. It is got to do with their chemical inertness. So in that respect, they keep a memory of these very early events. And likewise, we can combine the variety of isotopes from the different noble gases to probe the Earth on different timescales. The noble gases form a group in the periodic table, from helium being the lightest through neon, argon, krypton, xenon, and radon. How were these elements produced? So... In the noble gases, we have isotopes that we call primordial, which means these are the isotopes that were produced in stars. And then the solar system acquired these elements from neighboring stars. And then there are a set of isotopes that are produced by radioactive decay, such as from elements like uranium and thorium and potassium. And the really fascinating aspect about this is that the half-lives of these isotopes that ultimately end up producing these noble gases range from something like 14 billion years for thorium all the way down to something like 16 million years for an isotope of iodine that produces a particular isotope of xenon. So in many respects, this very wide range of these half-lives give us the sense to probe Earth on these very different timescales. You focused on one particular isotope of xenon to probe the early Earth, and that was 129 xenon. Can you explain why? Yes. So 129 xenon comes from the radioactive decay of 129 iodine, and this particular isotope was present when the solar system formed, but its half-life was 16 million years. And typically the useful range or useful time range for any particular radioisotope is roughly six times its half-life. 
So that means that after about 100 million years, iodine-129 is no longer around. All of it has been converted to 129-xenon. So therefore, Earth is able to keep a memory of this radioactive decay happening within the first 100 million years, because after 100 million years, there is not going to be any new production of 129-xenon. So any kind of variability that people see on the Earth would have to relate back to this first 100 million years. I said in my introduction that you can use such noble gas abundance measurements to shed light on whether today's mantle retains any of the original structure from which it first differentiated. How do you connect measurements of a xenon isotope with the mantle? So what we do is we start probing the products of melting of the modern day mantle. So for example, if I go to places like Hawaii or Iceland, which are really nice places to visit on its own, but also happen to be location of mantle plumes or hotspots. And in these mantle plumes, we now have evidence from seismology that they're being derived from material very near the core mantle boundary. So in that respect, these plumes are acting as chemical probes of the composition of the deepest parts of the Earth's mantle. And likewise, when we go to a mid-ocean ridge spreading center where there is new oceanic crust being created, the partial melting that we see is being derived from material that's present in the shallower part of the mantle. So then by comparing the composition of basalts in the mantle plumes versus the composition of basalts from the mid-ocean ridge, we're effectively probing different depth within the Earth's mantle. And so if we see differences in the 129 xenon composition between these two different regions of the mantle, we can immediately say, aha, the system could have only changed within the first 100 million years. The fact that we see differences are pointing to the fact that it had to have come from that first 100 million years. So that's how we connect our measurements of mantle-derived basalts to what's actually within the Earth's interior. That's fascinating. I'm struck by the fact that you can actually measure the abundances of noble gases in various kinds of basalts. So how do noble gases get into the rock in the first place? I mean, being inert, they can't really form minerals or react with the minerals chemically in any way, can they? You're right. They can't really chemically react with the minerals. And because of that, they don't actually like to be in a mineral because they're not forming any kind of chemical bond with their neighboring constituents. So often they tend to exist in what might be potentially distorted sites within a mineral lattice, or they might be present in very large ring structure in certain kinds of minerals like anthibolts. But those sites are rare. And because of that, they would rather be in a liquid phase where there are more opportunities for these noble gases to be present. And compared to a liquid phase, a vapor phase is their preferred host because then they're really happy. <laughs> so what happens is when the mantle starts partially melting, the noble gases are one of the first elements to leave the mineral lattice and go into the melt. 
But there are other elements, other compounds, such as maybe CO2 or water, which also typically do not like to be in minerals and want to effectively go from the mineral to these melts that are forming as the parcel of mantle starts to rise to the surface and the pressure release causes this partial melting. And then the melt starts eventually rising to the very surface of the earth. And as the melt starts rising, ultimately a CO2 vapor bubble might form. And then the noble gases will right away go from the melt into the CO2 vapor bubble. And when this melt erupts onto the seafloor, it immediately quenches because it is in contact with really cold ocean water and it forms a glass. And that glass effectively encapsulates these vapor bubbles. So we then take these glass samples into our laboratory and we crush them under vacuum and release the vapor bubbles, which releases the noble gases. And that's what we end up measuring in our laboratory. That's fascinating that they come out into the gas phase, but that makes me wonder, why did these noble gases go into the solid phase at all to begin with when the Earth was formed? Why didn't they just all stay in an atmosphere? That's a really fascinating question, and we can kind of speculate as to why. So in the early Earth, at some point, there was a magma ocean where maybe most of the mantle was molten. And then this magma ocean will eventually degas to form the very earliest atmosphere. And the noble gases are going to partition between this magma ocean and the atmosphere. But their solubility in this magma is very low, but it's not zero. So there's still going to be a finite amount that is going to be in the magma ocean. And then as the planet cools by losing heat to space, the magma ocean is going to slowly start to crystallize. And basically the noble gases are prisoners at this point, because as the minerals are forming, they're being shoved into these minerals because they can't escape. So they're present in very low abundances in these melts. And then when the melt starts to solidify, they enter or are forced to enter the minerals, but again, in very low abundances. And so the first opportunity they get, they try and escape. And that first opportunity is a remelting of the mantle. So now we have these gas bubbles, which are, say, in the case of the mid-ocean ridge basalt they're spewing out onto the sea floor and in the case of the ocean islands they're coming up in volcanoes like in Hawaii but in that point they must start being affected by in one case contamination by seawater and in the other case weathering with the atmosphere on the islands so the atmosphere itself also has some noble gases we hear quite a bit about the helium in the atmosphere and then we know that radon is generated in our basements sometimes if our houses are built on granite and we got to watch out for that mm -hmm. so do these gases contaminate these gas bubbles and how do you get at the actual mantle abundances so yes this is one of the frustrations that we have to deal with in these measurements that we often don't get a sample that is completely devoid of contamination of the atmospheric gases. And as you point out, yes, when you erupt the basalts onto the seafloor, they might get contaminated by the ocean water, which is some dissolved noble gases in them. For the mantle plumes, we also actually try and collect the 
the salt samples that erupt underwater as opposed to the lavas that erupt straight into the atmosphere subaerially. And the reason is that if they erupt underwater pressures, there's still a chance that the gas bubbles would be trapped in the liquid itself. Whereas if they erupt straight into the atmosphere, the chances are that the bubbles would be lost very quickly to the atmosphere and the solidified basalt sample won't have a lot of gas bubbles. But independent of this, both the plume basalts and the mid-ocean ridge basalts would have a little bit of atmospheric contamination. So the way we try and tease this out is by crushing the sample in multiple steps, because the expectation is that there are going to be points of weaknesses in these basalt samples, like fractures, through which the contamination is going to enter the sample. And so gas bubbles that might be close to a microfracture might actually have a lot more of this atmospheric contamination. Whereas little tiny gas bubbles that are much further away from the fractures may have very little or none. So when we start cracking the sample open, the first set of bubbles that would be released would be the ones that are very close to the fracture patterns because the samples would break along these pre-existing planes of weaknesses. So typically what we see is when we first start crushing the sample, most of the measured noble gas composition look largely similar to what you would expect in seawater, which is the atmospheric signature dissolved in seawater. And then as we progressively crack the sample into smaller and smaller bits, we start to see the composition move away from the atmospheric composition towards the mantle composition. And very interestingly, what we find is that for both the mid-ocean ridge basalts and the mantle plume basalts, they start off at the same point in their initial crushes, which is the atmospheric composition. But then as we progressively crush the sample, the trend starts diverging in two different directions, which are indicating that whatever composition is being contaminated, it's not the same. Because if it was the same, both sets of rocks would have defined a singular trend because it would be a single mantle composition contaminated by a single atmospheric composition. But we see two distinct trends and that's telling us there are two distinct sources within the Earth's interior. How do you actually measure the noble gas abundances? Do you crush the basalt in a vacuum chamber? And then how do you get the abundance of a noble gas? I'm curious because it's so inert. So again, that's a fascinating question. So when we crush the basalt and we release the gas bubbles, most of the gas is actually CO2. Dissolved in that CO2 at the level of parts per trillion, parts per quadrillion, are these noble gases. So one of the first things we have to do is to get rid of the CO2, get rid of any nitrogen, any little bits of methane or water that might be present. So the way we do this is we expose all of the gases to a highly reactive surface. And that highly reactive surface can be absorbs all of these constituents like CO2, water, nitrogen, and so on. But the noble gases are left behind because they're chemically inert. And so that's how we purify the noble gases. 
and then we can separate them out from each other using a very cold cryogenic trap where the noble gases get trapped onto a metallic surface and then we progressively increase the temperature of that metal surface and that will slowly release first helium and then neon and then argon and so on. And so as one of the gases gets released from this very cold cryogenic trap, we take that gas and we put it into a mass spectrometer to measure how many atoms of helium we have and what its isotopic composition is. And then we repeat it for all of the other noble gases like neon and argon and krypton and xenon. So let's come back to the progressive crushing then. You start out with the first bubbles being essentially reflective of air of the atmosphere. And then as you crush more and more, the abundances diverge until I guess the very, very last crushes are more reflective of the actual mantle abundances on the one hand of mid-ocean ridge basalt and on the other of ocean island basalt. So what do those results show? So that's where this half-life of the parent radioisotope iodine-129 comes in, because what we are detecting are these different signatures of 129-xenon in the ocean island basalts and in the mid-ocean ridge basalts. And the difference could be created in only two ways. One is through differences that we're inherently present in the mantle early on because of differences in let's say the degree of degassing of the Earth's interior, or they might be created by subduction of atmosphere. And so what these two different trends tell us is that subduction of atmosphere can't possibly explain this difference between the mid-ocean ridge basalts and the ocean island basalts because they don't lie on the same mixing trend. And so our only option in terms of an interpretation is that the differences in xenon-129 comes from the decay of iodine-129 in the mantle. And as I pointed out initially in the podcast, that the iodine-129 is only around for the first 100 million years of Earth's history. And so that means that then this difference in the xenon-129 could only have been produced within that first 100 million years. And that's the maximum range. Which of the two kinds of basalt has the lower amount of xenon-129? So it turns out that the lower amount of xenon-129 actually is present in the plume mantle or the ocean island basalt mantle. That's the one then that retains an identity that goes all the way back to the first 100 million years of Earth history. Is that right? So that's right. We think that its identity is related to its history within that first 100 million years and that it's telling us something about the differences in the degree of gas loss from these two different regions of the Earth's mantle. Because again, one critical point to remember is that xenon or any of the other noble gases don't just escape out of the mantle on their own. They usually are taking a ride on some other gas species like CO2 or maybe water. So their history is inherently tied 
to the history of these other gases like carbon dioxide or water. Okay, so the ocean island or the basalt that we think was sampled from much, much deeper in the earth than the mid-ocean ridge basalt, which we think comes from middle or perhaps upper levels of the mantle, has less of the xenon 129, and therefore it is what retains the memory of the very, very earliest formation of the earth. So does that tell us that in the mantle it has not in fact experienced any mixing with the material that forms the mid-ocean ridge basalt? I don't think it indicates that it has no mixing. I think what it indicates is that it has limited amount of mixing. Or another way of saying it is that after a hundred million years, the earth has never been homogenized. Because if it had been homogenized, such as by mixing, then we wouldn't see this difference in xenon-129. Because once we homogenize it and mix away this difference after 100 million years, I don't have a mechanism now to regenerate the difference. So the way I think about it is that, yes, there has been mixing between the mid-ocean rich basalt source and the ocean island basalt source, but it's limited. So if I was able to dial back time all the way back to 4.4 billion years, I would predict that the differences that I see compared to today would have been much, much larger. And so over time, that difference is being whittled away by mixing, but it has not been erased. So how might such a separate source material at the bottom of the mantle have formed so early on and maintained its separate identity, at least in part, throughout four and a half billion years of Earth history? So that is one of the million dollar questions. <laughs> and one potential mechanism for creating these differences might be related to Earth's violent birth, where the planet was being bombarded by other embryos or protoplanets generating very deep magma oceans. And more recent studies have shown that one of the products of crystallization of these magma oceans could be iron and magnesium rich phases which settle to the bottom of the mantle. And those phases now are going to be inherently denser than the rest of the mantle. So one could imagine a scenario where there was a giant impact during Earth's growth that melted the planet maybe all the way down to the core mantle boundary. And you crystallize this iron and magnesium rich layer, which was inherently denser. And then subsequent magma oceans created by other impacts never reached down to that depth. And so that inherently denser material has effectively survived all through the planet's history. So that's one potential explanation. I don't think we have a definitive answer at this point to how exactly this reservoir was produced. And I think that is one of the challenges in terms of figuring out how did we produce it and why is it still around for such a long time? Why didn't later giant impacts 
such as maybe the moon-forming giant impact, wipe this out. This reminds me of a couple of earlier podcasts in which two speakers, in fact, Alan McNamara and Mac Jackson in particular, spoke about these very large structures we see when we make seismic images of the Earth. They're called large, low shear velocity provinces, where it appears that the shear waves are traveling a little bit slower, which one can interpret because they're a little warmer than the surrounding, or alternatively, or maybe a bit of both, that they're made of a different material. Is it possible that these reservoirs that you're talking about that have this separate identity correspond to these large, low shear wave velocity provinces that we can actually see? So most likely, the answer to that is yes. Because again, as we look at recent seismic evidences, we see that these ocean island basalts, these mantle plumes are being derived from these low, large shear wave velocity provinces. And I'm of the group that actually believes that these large, low shear wave velocity provinces are not just warmer, that they're actually also denser than the surrounding mantle. And so they're not made out of entirely material that have existed in its pristine form for over four and a half billion years, but they have at least chunks of material that go all the way back to this 4.5 billion years. But there might be other material that has been recirculated from the surface into these large low shear wave velocity provinces. And we actually do see some chemical evidence that that has happened. And have people built geodynamic models? And I think Alan McNamara showed some of that with the simulations that he did that can generate stable patterns that are consistent with what we know about how slabs subduct and sink to very great depths and then are possibly recycled from somewhere quite far down near the core mantle boundary. So yes, I think Alan's work actually do show that these features could be stable for the entire time of Earth's history of about four and a half billion years. And there are other groups that have likewise shown that. But I'm not sure at this point there is a general consensus that these provinces, which are maybe a little bit bigger than the size of Earth's continents on the surface, actually go all the way back to four and a half billion years. There's another group of thought that says these are created entirely through subduction of Earth's tectonic plates. But now we know that can't really be the case, right? Because of the work you just described. That's correct. So I would argue that when we put together the seismic evidence that these mantle plumes are coming from these large low shear wave velocity provinces with the xenon composition that is different between mid-ocean rich basalts and these ocean island basalts, I would say there must be a component in this material that has to go all the way back to four and a half billion years. It doesn't rule out that maybe the vast majority is recycled, but there is chunks of material that is really, really old. I'm struck by the coincidence that there happens to be one noble gas radiogenic isotope that was produced on a timescale that's very short compared to the age of the Earth, but still of the order of time over which geodynamical processes can occur, i.e. a few tens of millions of years, that is what enables us to distinguish a reservoir that was isolated during a time less than a few half-lives of the corresponding decay, so early on in Earth history, 
Are there any other isotopes whose abundances we can measure that are produced by radiogenic decay with still shorter half-lives, specifically half-lives shorter than about 10 million years, which might enable us to probe still closer to the formation of the Earth? So yes, there are. And one of these isotopes is hafnium-182, which decays to tungsten-182. And this system is particularly interesting because hafnium likes being in the mantle. Tungsten, the decay product, likes being in the core. So hafnium tungsten has been used extensively to look at the differentiation between a planet's metallic core and its silicate mantle. And interestingly, there are some recent studies now that show that there are differences in tungsten isotopic composition between ocean island basalts and mid-ocean rich basalts. And again, this is an indication that that signature might have been created within the time scale that hafnium was alive. And because the half-life of hafnium is shorter than iodine-129, the half-life is about 8.9 million years, the total amount of time available is 60 million years. And now there is some growing debate as to what might be the implication of this tungsten isotope difference between ocean island basalts and mid-ocean ridge basalts. And could it potentially also be an indicator of a chemical interaction between the Earth's core and its silicate mantle? Because the core mantle boundary is a fascinating region. It's probably one of the most reactive boundaries we have on the Earth. It is super hot. And on one side, we have pure iron metal or iron metal with a little bit of other stuff. And on the other side, we have silicate material. So one should expect that there are some chemical reactions that are ongoing. And there are other isotopes such as palladium, which decays to silver. The half-life associated with that is even shorter, six and a half million years. There is an isotope of manganese, manganese 53, that decays to chromium. That has a half-life of three million years. And recently, this manganese chromium system was utilized to look at the timescales of magma ocean crystallization for Mars. So there are other isotopes that might allow us to probe the Earth's formation much further back in time. And one of the way forward, in my view, is to actually make all of these measurements on the same set of samples so we can build a much more complete picture of what might be going on. So, so far we are still measuring these different isotopes on different samples. So we are not necessarily always comparing an apple to an apple. It might be an apples to oranges comparison. I'd like to ask you a final question. If you could command a limitless budget for either space-based or terrestrial research into the early Earth, how would you use it? So I think I would design a mission to a comet to bring some comet samples back to Earth so we can study comets in much more detail. And the reason I say that is because I'm fascinated by the question of what was the composition of the early atmosphere and where did the early atmosphere come from? So in the noble gases, we now see evidence that shows that the Earth's early atmosphere cannot be generated simply by outgassing of its interior. But we also don't have a 
meteorite or a carbonaceous chondrite necessarily that we can put our finger on and say that particular meteorite has all of the necessary characteristics that can explain the atmospheric fingerprint. And so the noble gases are extremely useful in terms of fingerprinting what kind of materials might have contributed to the early atmosphere. And if we know that, we'll have a much better sense of what the overall composition of the atmosphere might have been in terms of was it CO2 dominated or was it a CO dominated atmosphere? What was the proportion of hydrogen in the atmosphere compared to H2O? And so we know so little of cometary noble gases and comets in general, I would argue, that that's where I believe I would focus my attention, is to bring a little bit of a comet back to my laboratory. Do you have your eye on any specific comets that are likely to come into our solar neighborhood anytime soon? I cannot give you a direct answer in terms of a specific comet, other than that we would want to sample both the icy part of the comet as well as the rocky part of the comet. So a lot of our observations so far of comets are actually from the icy part which sublimates as the comets come into the inner solar system. We have very little information about the rocky part. We do have some amount of material that was returned by the Stardust mission, but not enough for somebody like me to make very precise measurements of all of the noble gases. Sujoy Mukhopadhyay, thank you very much. Thank you, Oliver, for having me. This was wonderful. It was a delight chatting with you. For more about Geology Bites, as well as pictures and illustrations that support this podcast, go to geologybites.com.